1: I'm Natalie Orpet. It's January 8th, 2022. On today's Lawfare podcast, we're bringing you the first episode of our new narrative series, The Aftermath, which we released this past Thursday on the anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. The Aftermath explores what our democracy has been doing over the last year to confront, respond to, and deliver accountability for January 6th. The series will explore the many questions that have arisen in the aftermath of the insurrection and how our democratic institutions are trying to answer those questions. To listen to the whole series, be sure to subscribe to The Aftermath wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 8th, 2022. The Aftermath, Episode 1, Day Zero, Ground Zero. This podcast contains depictions of the events of January 6th, 2021. It includes audio containing violence, explicit language, and racial epithets. Listeners may find this content unsettling. Discretion is advised.
2: I
3: voted to, you know, to, to approve the, college, the electoral college count in Arizona, and then I walked out those center doors, saw, stepped over that broken glass, and then entered into the rest of the Capitol building for the first time since the riot had ended. I remember just going off on my own and, and walking through the Capitol
1: until I got to the Rotunda.
3: You know, what I saw there just, I can say it no other way than just say it broke my heart.
1: It's the evening of January 6th, 2021. Congress has just reconvened to certify the 2020 election of Joe Biden as President of the United States.
3: My name is Andy Kim. I'm Congressman of the New Jersey 3rd Congressional District. I am a lifelong public servant. I now found myself uh, serving my second term in the United States Congress.
1: The sight that breaks Kim's heart is one he never expected to see when he ran for office.
4: One of the lawmakers who was inside the Capitol when it was stormed, Democratic Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey. Late that night, Congressman Kim was photographed on his hands and knees, still in the same suit he wore, to work, helping clean up the damage left behind.
3: This room, I, which I, I believe it to be the most beautiful room in the most beautiful building in our country, it was disgraced and defiled. There was trash everywhere, broken benches, you know, cigarette butts on the floor. And I saw the, you know, the black mark on the white marble statues for where people put them out. Just the center point of our our democracy. And I I saw some police officers sitting on one of the benches. They were eating some pizza for their dinner and they were putting these empty pizza boxes into some trash bags. And I I walk over to them and one of them, and I ask them, you know, do you have any more trash bags? So I I told them I'm gonna start cleaning up. It was was just, it was this desire that I had. Uh, Honestly, I just couldn't leave the room in the condition that I found it in. So I, I stayed in there for as long as it needed to clean and pick up every single piece of trash in the rotunda. I went over to the statuary hall in the next room, went down to the crypt, which was in the worst condition of all the rooms I'd seen, um, for about an hour and a half, went around the Capitol and, and cleaned it up. So I think it was that feeling of turning the corner, of literally picking up the pieces in that metaphorical way. Announcing the subpoenas of five witnesses, the committee
0: says helped organize the rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. We cannot leave the violence of
1: January 6th and its causes uninvestigated.
5: The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. You don't answer our questions, you create rigmarole log jams.
6: Former President Trump is trying to stop the White House from turning documents over to the House committee investigating.
1: This is The Aftermath, a podcast from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo about the search for accountability, justice, and the rule of law in the wake of the January 6th Capitol attack. What have they been doing to, as Congressman Kim put it, pick up the pieces? The Aftermath is not a podcast about the insurrection itself or about how we got there. It's a podcast about what happened next. How our democracy is attempting to right itself in the face of an existential threat. Who is being criminally prosecuted and who isn't? How is Congress taking action and what is it ignoring? And how are our institutions telling the story and who gets to tell it? To set the scene for this project, we are going to spend one episode, this one, on the events of the day itself. How what happened on January 6th revealed the difficult questions that people have spent the last year trying to answer. This is Episode 1, Day Zero, Ground Zero.
2: This morning, President Trump plans to speak to thousands of his supporters who are in Washington to protest the election results. There are increasing warnings about some of those supporters potentially spreading violence in the Capitol.
0: Of tension in the air this morning as we build up to this event. But what you can see behind me is all these people, tens of thousands potentially already here.
7: So... On the morning of January 6th, I was not really worried at all. I'm just generally not the type of person that gets very ruffled by news of protests or even things where I probably should be nervous.
1: This is Grace Seegers, a reporter covering Congress on January 6th, then for CBS News. She now works for The New Republic.
7: I really figured that everything was going to be fine. There would probably be moderately sized protests, I thought. But I really wasn't expecting anything too out of the ordinary. I was really excited to cover the day's events because I had never had the opportunity before to cover the certification of Electoral College results.
1: The morning of January 6th, 2021 crowds begin gathering on the National Mall near the White House, an area known as the Ellipse. The crowd gathers there for a rally organized by several Trump-affiliated organizations, with support from Trump himself.
4: Good morning, America! This is the greatest group of patriots
8: ever put together!
1: Roughly one and a half miles away... Lawmakers are preparing for a joint session of Congress to certify the electoral college votes that were cast. Two Senate runoff elections had taken place in Georgia the previous day, and the results are becoming clear. Here's Congressman Andy Kim.
3: January 6th started off with a smile on my face. I I woke up in the morning, immediately reached for my phone to see what had happened with The Georgia runoff seats in the Senate. You know, when I saw the news about, you know, the two seats flipping, you know, I was thinking, wow, this is this is a good day. You know, I went to the Capitol that day feeling very good. I remember I drove by the backside of the Capitol because I wanted to see what was happening when it came to possible rallies and protests. I told my staff not to come into work that day as I was, you know, fearful that there was gonna be some tensions. I uh, you know, would not have been surprised if we saw some unrest outside the Capitol, but um, you know, certainly never expected to see what we ended up.
1: Despite widespread understanding that there would be demonstrations and protests that day, lawmakers arrived at the Capitol to perform their constitutional duty to certify the election. It's an event which is usually nothing more than a mere formality. Here is Brookings Senior Fellow and Lawfare Senior Editor, Molly Reynolds.
9: So on January 6th, Congress, the House and the Senate, convened to count the electoral votes. The date for this is set by law, unless it's kind of changed. And those votes are counted as part of a joint session. The vice president presides as the the president of the Senate. He opens the certificates from all of the states in alphabetical order. There are what are called tellers. Those are... um, two members of the House, two members of the Senate who read those certificates. That process began in the House convening at noon, in the Senate convened at 1230, and then proceeded over, like literally the, in, the membership of the Senate gets up and walks across the Capitol to the House. And then at one o'clock, when the vice president and the members of the Senate arrived in the House, um, is when they started the process of counting the votes. So what Congress was doing on January 6th is the last step in the process of finalizing the results of the election. There's the step that happens on election day where people vote. There are intermediate steps where the electors convene um, and cast the electoral college votes, and then those get sent to Washington. And then the final step takes place on on January 6th when Congress sits down and um, literally counts the electoral votes and uh, certifies the the winner of the election.
1: Congress gavels into session around midday.
8: The Senate and House of Representatives are meeting in joint session to verify the certificates and count the votes of the electors of the several states for president and vice president of the United
1: States. Shortly after Congress begins its session, Capitol Police... The police department with jurisdiction over the U.S. Capitol sees crowds of protesters approaching from the National Mall.
8: They're back
5: into the monument. Everyone's breaking through the bike rack. There's a large crowd that's following us. We're going back
9: into the monument.
0: They're breaking through the bike fence. We're inside. Uh, they're at the front of
9: the gate. The U.S. Capitol Police are responsible for law enforcement and security in the U.S. Capitol complex. They have the power to make arrests in the Capitol building on the Capitol grounds, and and so in, in that sense, they have some similarities to regular police officers. But they also, but what they generally do on a day to day basis is maintain the security of the buildings.
1: Around the same time as Congress gavels in. President Trump begins speaking to the crowd. He speaks for more than an hour.
4: Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you, we're going to walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, and we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them.
2: If this election were overturned by mere allegations from the losing side, our democracy would enter a death spiral. We'd never see the whole nation accept an election again.
1: It is during Trump's speech that the day begins to unravel.
4: Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong.
1: Katie Benner is a reporter for The New York Times, who covers the Department of Justice.
6: I was sitting at my dining room table, watching all of the feeds come in from reporters who were on the ground and at the Capitol, and from people who were inside the building. And then I started to get some phone calls with tips about incidents that had been reported, both at the RNC and the DNC, bomb threats. And that was what I thought would be the craziest thing that happened all day
2: we have new information from NBC News. An explosive device has been located at the the headquarters of the Republican National Committee. The Democratic National Committee headquarters have now been evacuated subsequently.
1: Here again is Congressman Andy Kim.
3: The first indication that something was not right and something was potentially really going off the rails was when we got the bomb threats, and that it wasn't just threats, they were actually bombs that were found in the Capitol complex vicinity. But that was something that really hit home to me that this is real, and this is something we have to be very careful about.
1: But the bombs, which remain an unsolved crime to this day, turn out to be only a prelude. While Trump is still speaking, at 12.53 p.m., the first rioters overwhelm police and break through the Capitol perimeter. By 103, they have breached three layers of barricades. As confrontations with Capitol Police begin, the first objections to the certification of the Electoral College happen in the joint session from Paul Gosar, Congressman from Arizona, and Ted Cruz, Senator from Texas.
8: Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Arizona that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic? Mr. Vice President, I, Paul Gosar, from Arizona. For what Sports, purpose this, does the gentleman from Arizona rise? I rise up for myself and sixty of my colleagues to object to the uh, counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. Uh, is the objection in writing and signed by a senator? Yes, it is. It is.
1: Trump wraps up his speech at 1:10 p.m., and by 1:30 p.m., an even larger crowd is moving toward the Capitol.
8: Yo, there's the Capitol in the background. There, we're all headed down there. There's a the time
7: to do
1: it; it's now. Here again is Grace Seekers
7: once i had gotten to the capitol it was there were definitely protesters outside it was a big group i remember looking outside the press gallery is on the third floor of the capitol so i looked outside a th- third floor window and was surprised to see the number of people you could hear them shouting from the third floor and I thought to myself, wow, that's a pretty big crowd. And I took a picture of the crowd, which was one of the only pictures that I took that day. And then I just went along my merry way and figured there are protests outside, but surely that will not affect me inside the Capitol, which is totally
1: safe. But that, too, changes quickly. Here's New York Times reporter Katie Bunner.
6: Well, the story started moving so incredibly fast after I got the bomb threat tips. It was clear that there was going to be a lot more chaos than um, I think we had even anticipated and we'd braced for a lot of chaos. But so it was a matter of of confirming those tips, getting stories up as quickly as possible. And even as we were writing those stories, crowds were leaving the area near the ellipse where the speeches were being given by Trump's allies, and moving toward the Capitol with an intent to somehow disrupt what was happening in Congress. So you could kind of see it unfolding in real time, and it was unfolding really, really fast.
1: Although Capitol Police leaders and the mayor of D.C. had been warned of violent threats, they later claim that the warnings in no way prepared them for what happened. The result on that day is that the Capitol Police are severely understaffed for the size of the crowds and the threat of violence that they pose. Here is the later testimony of former Capitol Police Chief Steven Sund.
5: A clear lack of accurate and complete intelligence across several federal agencies contributed to this event and not poor planning by the United States Capitol Police. We rely on accurate information from our federal partners to help us develop effective security plans. The intelligence that we based our planning on indicated that the January 6th protests were expected to be similar to the previous MAGA rallies in 2020, which drew tens of thousands of participants. The assessment indicated that members of the Proud Boys, white supremacist groups, Antifa, and other extremist groups were expected to participate on January 6th, and that they may be inclined to become violent. Based on the intelligence that we received, we planned for an increased level of violence at the Capitol and that some participants may be armed. But none of the intelligence we received predicted what actually occurred.
1: The crowds begin further amassing at the West Front. Now, hundreds of rioters are directly confronting Capitol Police, attempting to bypass security railings, screaming threats, and brandishing weapons. It becomes apparent that the Capitol Police do not have adequate numbers to maintain control. The crowds increase into the thousands.
9: It's important to remember that we're not just talking about the U.S. Capitol itself, with the with the big dome, but there are office buildings for both the House and the Senate. There are a couple of additional office buildings that house the congressional support agencies, the Library of Congress, that sort of thing. And so, their job is to to maintain physical security of all of those spaces, and that is, I think. Certainly for most people who have ever encountered a member of the Capitol Police, frankly, whether it's a if you, you know, are a member of Congress or a staffer or just someone who's visited Capitol Hill, your recollection of them will be, oh, they're the folks who man the metal detectors, that sort of thing. That's not to say that they don't do other perform other important security features um, and functions, but they much of their routine day to day work is just maintaining the physical security of the complex.
1: The scene outside the Capitol is becoming untenable, as riot control officers and police are too thinly spread to effectively cover the entry points of the Capitol building. A significant number of the rioters have come prepared for violence, with many bringing chemical agents, baseball bats, military gear, and other weapons. Officers are sprayed with mace and struck with heavy objects. As police are taken back from the line to recover, Rioters move closer and closer.
2: We are still taking metal sharpened objects, missiles to include bottles and rocks, and chemical spray fireworks.
1: Capitol Police Chief Steven Sund. These people came
5: specifically with equipment. You're bringing climbing gear to, to a demonstration. You're bringing explosives. You're bringing chemical spray. The fact that the group that attacked our West Front, attacked our West Front 20 minutes Approximately 20 minutes before the event over at the Ellipse ended, which means they were planning on our agency not being at what they call full strength.
1: But still, the possibility of a full breach hasn't hit many of those inside the Capitol. That includes Grace Seekers.
7: My impression was the Capitol was pretty secure. I mean, there were a fair amount of Capitol Police officers there on that day. The police presence definitely seemed bulked up. Felt like a little insulated bubble.
1: That bubble bursts around 1.30 p.m. as the crowds begin to fully overtake the police. (laughs)
10: If I give this up! We're gonna
1: have to after! We gotta hold what we have! The police on the scene make urgent calls for assistance. Requests are sent to the Metropolitan Police Department, as well as to National Guard troops and police departments in bordering cities.
10: 1033! I'll see 1033, 1033 from the capital! We have been pranked and we've lost more.
1: Leadership responds to these frantic calls with delays. Some of those delays can be attributed to the quick escalation of events, but many result from structural problems in the decision-making process. Here again is Molly Reynolds.
9: Another way in which the Capitol Police are different than most law enforcement agencies is the kind of decision-making structure for big decisions when and how to call in assistance from the National Guard um, or other, other law enforcement agencies. And... For the Capitol Police at that time on January 6th, certain decisions were subject to a three-person decision-making structure rather than to the chief of police. That three-person decision-making body is called the Capitol Police Board and is composed of the House and Senate sergeants-at-arms as well as the architect of the Capitol. And so that was certainly in in terms of their ability to get assistance from the National Guard.
1: Here is Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund testifying later.
5: I cannot request the National Guard without a declaration of emergency from the Capitol Police Board. You know, I can't even give my men and women cold water on an excessively hot day without a declaration of emergency.
1: Here is testimony from Captain Carnesha Mendoza of the Capitol Police Department, who arrives on the scene after distress calls from dispatchers. I was advised things were pretty bad. I asked where assistance was needed and was advised of six active scenes. There was an explosive device at the Democratic National Committee Building, a second explosive device at the Republican National Committee Building, and large hostile groups at different locations outside the Capitol Building. I advised the dispatcher I would respond to the DNC since that building was closest to where I was at the time. En route, I heard officers at the Capitol Building calling for immediate assistance, so I proceeded past the DNC to the Capitol. As I arrived to the east front plaza of the Capitol, I heard an officer yell there was a breach at the rotunda door, and I heard various officers calling for assistance at multiple locations throughout the building. At 1.49 p.m., Capitol Police Chief Sund issues an urgent request for the D.C. National Guard to be immediately deployed to the Capitol. But leadership doesn't grant approval for the Guard's mobilization. Even though the attack is still underway, the Capitol Police are not given any explanation for why the D.C. National Guard is not being sent in to assist. The following is testimony from then Commanding General of the D.C. National Guard, William J. Walker.
2: At 1.49 p.m., I received a frantic call from then Chief of United States Capitol Police, Stephen Sun, where he informed me that the security perimeter of the United States Capitol had been breached by hostile rioters. Chief Sun, his voice cracking with emotion, indicated that there was a dire emergency at the Capitol, and he requested the immediate assistance of as many available National Guardsmen that I could muster. Immediately after that 130-149 call, I alerted the U.S. Army senior leadership of the request. The approval for Chief Sons' request would eventually come from the acting Secretary of Defense and be relayed to me by Army senior leaders at 5.08 p.m., about three hours and 19 minutes later.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can Create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible you can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, Lawfare 20.
1: This delay provoked questions, like this exchange between Jake Tapper of CNN and chief of the National Guard Bureau, General Daniel Hokanson.
2: And he made a, quote, urgent, urgent, immediate request for National Guard assistance. I have got to get boots on the ground, unquote. He says Lieutenant General Walter Pyatt, director of the Army staff, said he could not recommend that his boss, Army Secretary McCarthy, approve the request. Quote, I don't like the visual of the national guard standing a police line with the capitol in the background he said again and again sunset the situation is dire he said he was ignored for hours why
8: hey, no jake I, I don't know the answer to that um, but what i do know is that when uh, secretary mccarthy did get the request um, what they did is they took the national guard forces from the dc national guard that were on duty and they brought them from their locations around the uh, the traffic control points and the metro stations Brought them back to the D.C. Armory to get them properly equipped so that they could support the law enforcement officials that actually went back into our nation's capital. And at that time, they did provide cordon security.
1: Without additional reinforcements, the Capitol Police are drastically outnumbered and no longer have the ability to guard all entry points to the Capitol. Rioters continue attacking officers and begin violently pulling some of them into the crowd. The officers attempt to find fallback positions on both the east and west front of the building. Rioters overrun these positions and move further into the complex. Inside the House and Senate chambers, many are unaware of the degree to which rioters have penetrated the security perimeter. Many are in their offices... But a significant number of House members are still in the chamber. Shortly after 2 p.m., droves of rioters fully breach the Capitol building. They smash windows and climb through, and soon after, they force open doors. Hundreds of people begin pouring into the Capitol building. Just minutes after the first rioters enter the building, the U.S. Capitol Police issues a shelter-in-place alert that goes out to members of Congress, their staffs, and others who work in the Capitol building. Congressman Andy Kim is on his way to the Capitol from his office in the House Rayburn building when the order comes.
3: Uh, I was uh, still in the office buildings, in the Rayburn office building, that I just moved into a couple days before. So I was still making my way through the building, still navigating my way to the Capitol. When I got word about the shelter in place order, I didn't at that point realize what had happened in terms of an actual breach of the Capitol. I had assumed that perhaps there was another bomb threat or God forbid, even a possible explosion.
1: The Senate recesses abruptly and evacuates.
2: And it will stand in recess until the call of the chair. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you.
1: Here again is Grace Seekers.
7: A Capitol Hill staffer that I was in contact with DM'd me, direct messaged me on Twitter that the Cannon House office building had been evacuated because some protesters had gotten into the Cannon House office building. And I thought to myself, whoa, that's pretty scary. Fortunately, I am here in the Capitol itself, which is as safe as you can be within the complex. So about the time that I was getting that direct message was roughly the same time that Mike Pence was being evacuated from the Senate chamber and that the first protesters had broken into the Capitol building itself.
1: Once the attackers have fully breached the Capitol building, chaos ensues as law enforcement officers lose command and control of the building. In the Senate chamber, Seekers is reporting on the proceedings when she gets trapped inside.
7: We saw The senators begin to be evacuated, and at first, you know, it seemed that the Capitol Police weren't really paying attention to us, but then one of the Senate gallery staffers yelled, what about us? Shouldn't we evacuate too? We were an afterthought.
1: The House, which still has members and personnel inside the chamber, barricades the doors, and security officers draw their pistols. Members are given chemical hoods and are told to prepare for an imminent attack. Here is Congressman Jamie Raskin, later recounting the attack at the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump.
4: And all around me, people were calling their wives and their husbands, their loved ones, to say goodbye. Members of Congress in the House anyway, were removing their congressional pins so they wouldn't be identified by the mob as they tried to escape the violence. Our new chaplain got up and said a prayer for us and we were told to put our gas masks on. And then there was a sound I will never forget, the sound of pounding on the door like a battering. The most haunting sound I ever heard, and I will never forget it.
1: Droves of rioters are now breaking down doors and shattering windows. They enter offices and steal items. Capitol Police barricade the House chamber with furniture and chairs. One rioter attempts to climb through a smashed window, gaining access to the House chamber. She is shot and killed. The remaining members are evacuated from the House floor, scarcely protected by a small number of Capitol Police. Where are we going? Rayburn. Rayburn. They make it out just in time, missing throngs of rioters by mere seconds. Still in his office, Congressman Kim doesn't know what's happening on the other side of his door.
3: Now, I was able to, thankfully, take shelter in my office, where you know, I lay low and I didn't know what was going on fully. Even as the breach unfolded, we didn't know if people were, some of these rioters were making their ways to the office buildings. Just a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty. The kind of uncertainty that, like, leads me to press my ear against the uh, the door of my office just to hear when I hear footsteps outside, not sure what's happening.
1: On the Senate side, attackers gain unrestricted access to the Senate chamber. <laughs>
2: Yo, it's empty. It's empty.
5: It
1: Rummaging through senators' desks, stealing personal effects, and demanding to know where the lawmakers are. With the Capitol complex completely overrun and lawmakers evacuated, Capitol police cease their attempts to block attackers from advancing throughout the building.
3: Hey, where they coming from?
1: Thousands are now on the grounds and inside the Capitol. They are roaming freely. Some take paintings and fixtures. Others smash windows and ransack offices. And some continue to search for legislators, calling their names and chanting threats of hanging the vice president. Crowds outside continue to clash with police, whom they attack with weapons, fire extinguishers, and even American flags. Here's now former D.C. police officer Michael Finone testifying later.
5: I was grabbed, beaten, tased, all while being called a traitor to my country. I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm as I heard chants of killing with his own gun. I could still hear those words in my head today. Although I regularly deal with risky situations on the job, nowhere in my wildest imagination did I ever expect to be in that situation or sitting here before you talking about it. That experience and its aftermath were something that not even my extensive law enforcement training could prepare me for.
1: The following is testimony from Officer Harry Dunn of the Capitol Police.
10: More and more insurrectionists were pouring into the area by the speaker's lobby near the rotunda. I told them to just leave the Capitol and in response they yelled, no man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I responded, well I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, You hear that, guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. To be candid, the rest of the afternoon is a blur, but I know I went throughout the Capitol to assist officers who needed aid and help expel more insurrectionists.
1: Why would we get off with the evacuation, the protesters have stopped the electoral certification. The Capitol is compromised by thousands of rioters, and the safety of those inside remains in question. While Metropolitan Police have arrived, there is still no National Guard to assist. There is silence from the White House.
2: I want people to remember how they feel watching these images of the United States Capitol being taken over because there's gonna be an attempt to whitewash and pretend this didn't happen. I'm sorry for interrupting, but we've just gotten a new tweet from the president, and this one is worth repeating.
1: Shortly after 4 p.m., President Trump posts a recorded video message suggesting the Capitol rioters go home while also praising their patriotism and reinforcing their belief in a stolen election.
4: I know you pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace.
1: Several hours after the breach of the Capitol, the acting Secretary of the Army approves deployment of the National Guard to provide assistance and backup to those officers already defending the Capitol. They finally begin clearing the complex around 4.45 p.m. It is a difficult task. It is not until 8 p.m., about six hours after they had been forced to adjourn, that the Capitol is safe for Congress to resume its business. House leadership and staff begin making arrangements to resume the electoral certification, though the House office buildings and larger Capitol complex still need to be secured, room by room. It is unclear if any rioters remain. There are concerns that the Capitol grounds may have pipe bombs, similar to those found at the RNC and DNC that morning.
2: The Capitol Police brought out yet another protester that they found roaming these halls that had gotten inside the Capitol Complex.:
1: By 8:05 p.m., Vice President Pence returns to the chamber and gavels in the Senate proceeding. At nine o'clock p.m, Speaker Nancy Pelosi gavels in the House. The electoral certification resumes:
8: And as we reconvene in this chamber, the world will again witness the resilience and strength of our democracy for even in the wake of unprecedented violence and vandalism at this Capitol, the elected representatives of the people of the United States have assembled again. Let's get back to work.
1: Despite the day's events, several Republican lawmakers continue to object to the certification, taking the debate into the late hours of the evening.
4: Mr. President, sadly, but resolutely, I object to the electoral votes of my beloved Commonwealth of Pennsylvania on the grounds of multiple constitutional infractions that they were not under all of the known
2: circumstances regularly given. And that's why I submit to my colleagues that what we're doing here tonight is actually very important. These objections don't deserve an ounce of respect, not an ounce. We know that that attack today, it didn't materialize out of nowhere. It was inspired by lies, the same lies that you're hearing in this room tonight. And the members who are repeating those lies should be ashamed of themselves. Their constituents should be ashamed of them.
3: There was just this moment where we returned to the Electoral College dispute. And I saw colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle literally just pulling out of their breast pocket the exact same speech that they were going to give. Regard- if this riot had never happened, that there I could not believe that they were just given the same speech. And that was the moment where I confronted the reality that we were not going to have agreement when it came to impeachment. We were not going to have any type of agreement when it came to accountability, that the big lie is bigger than January 6th for them. And that, that they will stand by that big lie, despite what we had just witnessed, this tragedy upon our democracy.
1: It is not until 3.24 a.m. that the election of Joe Biden is formally certified.
8: The votes for President of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes. The chair declares the joint session dissolved.
1: In the early hours of January 7th, the certification is finally complete. Lawmakers go home, many escorted by police. The National Guard is garrisoned inside the Capitol complex. The mayor of D.C. has issued a curfew for the entire city that has been in effect since 6 p.m., Hundreds are injured, dozens are hospitalized, and two individuals are already confirmed dead, with several more deaths to come. The Capitol attack of January 6th has ended. But questions about what it was, what it means, and what comes next are just beginning.
8: What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States.
2: This is treason. This is treason, this insurrection, this is rebellion, period. We know how we got
4: here. President of the United States says again and again and again that these institutions are corrupt. They're rigged. The election was fraudulent. They're stealing it from you.
9: I've never seen anything like this. I never thought I would see an armed mob like this break windows, uh, and get into the United States Capitol. These individuals,
2: they should be arrested immediately. I assume some of them will be.
1: Some lawmakers had already begun thinking about the astonishing array of questions before them.
3: I, I spent a lot of my time talking and calling around and texting with my colleagues, trying to get a sense of whether everyone's safe, how people are doing in particular those that were on the House floor, letting people know in my district, my family know and others that I'm okay. And really just, I did a lot of deep thinking. I mean, honestly, what was going on through my mind was just this singular question of how did it get this bad?
1: But what does accountability for an event like this even look like? Whom are we trying to hold accountable? And for what exactly? Who gets to decide the answers to these questions? Congress? The executive branch? The courts? The press? Over the past year, all of them have been trying to confront what happened to find some form of justice. January 6th put a lot of questions on the table for just about everyone. And American democracy has been busy trying to respond. One set of questions involves why the Capitol Police were so unprepared as Congressman Kim wondered, locked up in his office.
3: When I would see some of these images of, of people just walking around the Capitol, and I'm just you know thinking through my mind, like, how is this being allowed? Like, how is it that we do not have control over the Capitol? I remember distinctly, calling my colleagues, many of us asking, where is the National Guard? Do I need to call over to the Pentagon? What do we need to do to try to figure out why it is that we still do not have control over the Capitol, that for several hours the United States government did not have control over the United States Capitol?
1: Here again is Molly Reynolds.
9: Brought to the fore were real operational questions about um, how secure the U.S. Capitol was. How did Congress get to a point where the U.S. Capitol Police were not prepared for what happened on January 6th from a training perspective, from an operational perspective.
1: Here again is New York Times reporter Katie Benner.
6: I think there are a lot of questions about the Capitol Police. There have been multiple Inspector General reports that have now come out about their actions that day, none of which have been made public. They clearly show multiple failures, but I think this is going to be one of the things that um, we might see as a question mark for a while because, of course, the Capitol Police are controlled by Congress. And so th- it's it's going to be in some ways Congress investing in its own police force. And I'm not really sure how much transparency we're going to get there.
1: In the months that follow the attack, the preparations of Capitol Police and the information it received from federal agencies will come under sharp scrutiny. Here is the former sergeant at arms for the House, Paul Irving, speaking to a Senate committee in the weeks to come.
5: The chief's plan took on an all-hands-on-deck approach, whereby every available sworn Capitol Police employee with police powers was assigned to work on January 6th. That meant approximately 1,200 Capitol Police officers were on site, including civil disturbance units and other tactical teams. Based on the intelligence, we all believed that the plan met the threat. We now know that we had the wrong plan.
1: There are other questions, too more complicated questions questions of political accountability starting with that of the president himself but trump is supposed to be leaving office in a few days anyway should he be impeached removed under the 25th amendment something else entirely here again is congressman kim
3: i think there was a lot of a lot of recognition across the board that president trump was responsible for inciting this crowd. So I, I, at that point, was thinking, you know, is this gonna be a kind of a moment where it breaks the fever and where we're we're finally willing to like stand up against this demagogue with a megaphone and say, this has gone too far.
1: What about political accountability for other people?
3: Today is the day American patriots start
4: taking down names and kicking ass.
0: Take a look
8: at a picture ...that was taken of Hawley, acknowledging the protesters yesterday
1: at the Capitol with his fist raised.
4: Let's have trial by combat!
1: There are questions of criminal accountability, too. Eventually, droves of rioters begin leaving the Capitol after hours of ransacking the building, attacking officers, and unsuccessfully pursuing lawmakers they walk out the main exits of the Capitol. No attempt is made to stop or arrest them. Thousands of individuals appear to have committed felonies, ranging from unlawful entry to assault of law enforcement officers, property destruction, perhaps even insurrection. And all those individuals are allowed to leave the Capitol without interference. This creates, over the weeks and months to come, a challenge never before seen by federal law enforcement.
3: I think where it really hit me, this moment where it just stunned me, was that that people just left the Capitol. (laughs) That at some point this was just over in somewhat of a whimper that people just walked away. And that thousands of people who ransacked the Capitol just went back to whatever hotels they were staying at and had had to food in their room and probably reminiscing and bragging about that. day. The fact that none of them were detained or arrested on that day was just shocking. I remember literally just going to the Capitol and just asking people, like, what happened? How were they allowed to just walk out the door?
1: For those of you who are just joining us, we are witnessing history and what can only be described as a national disgrace.
8: The nation today has witnessed a grave breach of its Democratic traditions. For the first time in American history, supporters of the losing presidential candidate forcibly disrupted the official counting of electoral votes. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition, and it must end now.
1: On the next episode, we'll take you through the massive criminal investigation that began immediately within the federal government, even though the Department of Justice had, just days earlier, gone through its own sort of insurrection.
6: Three days before January 6th, you almost see a Saturday night massacre at the Justice Department three days before January 6th. Now, can you imagine if the mob had stormed the Capitol and there was literally nobody at the Justice Department at all?
1: Over this series, we're going to explore Congress's immediate steps, which involved constitutional remedies against Trump himself.
9: rise today to urge the impeachment of Donald Trump because the attack on the Capitol, the traitorous incitement of an insurrection, demands not just impeachment but removal of
1: office. And we'll take a look at some of the early congressional hearings that tried to answer the question of how the Capitol Police came to be so drastically overwhelmed and why it took so long for the National Guard to show up.
9: While we begin today by taking the public testimony of these four heroic men, we must also realize that the task of this committee will require persistence.
7: We must find out what was known about the potential for violence before the attack and how that intelligence was shared with law enforcement partners.
1: And we'll look at the efforts to set up a bipartisan National Commission to report on the insurrection. And when those failed the House Select Committee that developed in its stead. We'll look at the work of that committee as it unfolds and the roadblocks it faces.
4: A sham committee that's just politically driven by Speaker Pelosi. I think even your viewers understand what a sham this committee is and how politically driven.
1: This series is Lawfare's effort to tell the story of how our democracy is responding to January 6th. The events of that day set in motion a series of institutional efforts to combat and find accountability for a catastrophic event in our nation's history. How do we pick up the pieces when the very foundations of democracy have been shaken? The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Scripting by Natalie Orpet, Ian Enright, Rohini Kurup, and Benjamin Wittes. Series executive producers are Natalie Orpet, Benjamin Wittes, and Ian Enright. Senior producer is Megan Nadalski. Associate producer is Rohini Kurup. Interviews for this episode were conducted by Benjamin Wittes and Quinta Jurassic. Production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan Kara Schillen, and Max Johnston. Editing, artwork, and scoring by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. To learn more about Lawfare, visit lawfareblog.com, where you can find the Lawfare team's January 6th project, Confronting the Insurrection. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.